Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 down through verse 20, as we continue on through the study in Galatians. Uh, what I really want to show you, and I hope it's abundantly obvious, is that Paul changes his tone as he's working through this letter. Uh, the tone, the theme for our text this morning um, has really changed significantly from what we see in the first three chapters. We started to identify this last week, but let me tell you, it really happens this morning as we see his tone and the theme, the reason that he is addressing them or the, the, the thing that is on his mind as he's communicating is significantly changed. In the first portion of this letter, as I already said, the first three chapters of this letter, Paul has been passionate, fiery. Uh, just to say that in, in a real blunt way, he is lit up. He is fired up. He is confrontive. He is argumentative. And I don't mean that in a confrontational, like, petty kind of a way, but more in the apologetic kind of way. He is arguing with rhetoric a logical conclusion to the fallacy of salvation by works. He's confronting that in the church of Galatia, and he's saying it is only by grace through faith in Christ alone. The intensity is all about the fundamental message of the gospel. The wrong thought, the question is, is salvation received by good works of men? Absolutely not. The right conclusion, or is salvation only by grace, received through faith in Christ alone? That's what he's standing on. That's what he's very logically, very progressively, in this real linear fashion, been working through in the first portion of this book. We've identified this several times, but we're going to read it again because we want to really set this in in a solid fashion. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, the unquestionable argument of the book of Galatians is summarized in this one verse. Read with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Even though the tone's changing this morning, the purpose, the message of this letter has not changed. His agenda, if we want to say it, is still solid. He's still bringing the same common message. And last week when we looked to chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the section immediately preceding where we are this morning, we noted that Paul had changed his tone to some degree. But what we see this morning is even more dramatic. And what we saw last week, particularly in verses 4 down through verse 7, the, the, the message that he had for the church of Galatia and for us was less of that, that apologetic or that argument, and it was more about the outcome. It was more about the ramifications. This is what it means for us who have received this gift of salvation, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is, the, this is what it means. Look at verse, verse 4 from chapter 4. This is how he spoke of it last week. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is still very logical. This is still very linear. The word we keep using is this is very intentional rhetoric that he's building this progressive case. And that was a real change in the tone of what he was doing in the preceding chapters, the way he talks about this is what it means to be in Christ. We are now adopted. We are sons. We are daughters of the Father in his Son, Jesus Christ. In the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we now bear the very nature of God in so many senses as he speaks of this. Now, today, we turn to verse 12, and when we turn to verse 12, something dramatically changes. 
he changes gears in a very unique kind of a way. Not only is he not arguing for the, the, the method of salvation, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, not only is he talking about what it means to be in Christ, now he, t- he compels and he, he drives to this argument of, of let me speak to your hearts as Galatians. Let me talk to you about what's going on within you and the relationship we share. Let me, let me draw upon that in a different kind of a way. The purpose of this letter has not changed, even though something dramatic has changed in the way he's communicated. The message remains the same. Salvation by grace through faith alone. But take your eyes and go all the way down to verse 20. It's actually the concluding verse that we're going to look at this morning. Verse 20, he says this. He identifies what I'm trying to point your attention toward. I wish I could be present with you and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. What is he saying there? He is saying, I'm still fired up. I'm still deeply concerned. But what we're going to see from verse 12 to 19 is he's, he argues this from a very different perspective from everything else he's said in, this whole, in the whole preceding section of this book. Rather than confronting and challenging them regarding their uh, abandonment of the gospel by adding the works of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant law, he now talks to them in a loving, a compassionate, honestly what the text is going to show us, less in a fatherly manner and more in a motherly fashion. I'm going to point that out to you in just a second. Remember Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This is, again, the foundation that he starts to build this argument about this is all about the gospel. I am astonished, close parallel to perplexed. Not the same word, but there's a real correlation here. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's what he's argued for. And now he speaks to their hearts. He speaks lovingly. He speaks compassionately. He speaks reflectively. He talks about something they shared in the past. And there's something about that that we have to identify. He's going to talk about the fact that I'm saying really hard things to you. I'm confronting and saying things to you that are hard to hear, but it's on the foundation of the relationship we share together that I have the merit, I have the ability to say these hard things. That's the theme of what he's going to be going to this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 to 20. Follow along as I read this morning. Brothers, I entreat you, because, or become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus." What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You make much of it, but for no good purpose. Then, then, excuse me, they want to shut you, you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Even as I stumble and struggle to read through that this morning, we always have to be reminded this is the very word of God. This is God's word for us today. I don't have an outline for you this morning. You heard me correctly. I do not have an outline for you this morning. Paul's tone has changed so dramatically 
rather than speaking in Paul's typical Pauline kind of a method where it's very logical, very structured, very analytical, we could say, Paul is now speaking emotionally and lovingly, almost more conversationally with, this pe- with these people. I was really struggling as I was doing my independent study, trying to prepare this, trying to structure this. I was really struggling to put this together in a package that outlined and showed this to you. And then as I started to compare, it came later in my study process, and I started to look at other commentaries, other theologians that have worked through the same passage, they all verbalized exactly what I was struggling with. And I thought, I'm not the only one who's nuts here this morning. This is a really hard passage to organize because it's so conversational. And so in a unique kind of a way, rather than working through this in an outline fashion, we are simply going to work through this passage, are you ready? Verse by verse. Just simply going to work through it verse by verse. I'm going to give you a couple headings here, not a couple, with each one of the verse breaks that I'm going to share. I have a heading just to kind of associate it, but there is no outline for you this morning. It's going to completely stress some of you out. It's okay. You don't have to have an outline to accurately teach Scripture. The first verse that I want us to see, though that's not the right one, the first verse that I want us to see is verse 12. Look at verse 12, and in this section, he talks to the brothers. He speaks brothers. Brothers, I entreat you, become become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Throughout the entirety of this letter, Paul has used a ton of family language. That's actually an assignment for you. Read through the first four chapters leading up to where we are today and look for family language. Here's some clues that we see here. He has talked a tremendous amount about the heavenly Father, God himself. He has talked about the Father's Son, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the Son. Equally God, yet the second person of the Trinity. Yet, he has also used the, the verbiage in this family, this human relationship we share, to use to talk about the son and a child who was growing under the father's home. Think about that kind of a verbiage that he's used. And this progression that takes place for a child as he matures into adulthood. This is family language. He talks about children. He talks about the guardians of those children. He talks about attaining adulthood or maturity in this section. And the rights and privileges, this is more family language, of adoption. Okay? That's important when we think about that. Now look at the very first word of verse 12. It's another family word. Brothers. That's not by coincidence. That's not just Christian jargon, which, by the way, I think we do use words in the church or in the, in the way that we speak to other believers that is kind of this jargon that we use among the church, and we don't think about what we mean when we say these kind of terms. Brothers. Brothers. Because of adoption by the Father through the Son. That's chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. We together, and I'm going to say this repetitively to make the point, together are brothers and sisters in Christ. We together compose or make up the household of faith. We're going to see that in chapter 6, verse 10. We together, here's that redundancy again, together are family in Christ Jesus. It is good, it is biblical, it is appropriate for us to love each other, for us to care for each other, and even to literally to refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about that. How often do you greet one of this this group of people, this assembly of believers, and greet them as a brother or a sister? That's the exact verbiage that Paul's using here, and it is biblical for us to talk to each other that way. But, but this isn't in a secular sense. This is identifying who we are together in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are adopted by the Father. That's what Paul's talking about. This is what we commonly share together. 
the people seated near you with this assumption. If they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, receiving salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, you ready? They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. The people that are sitting behind you, the people who are sitting next to you, the people who are a couple rows in front of you, it doesn't matter how different we are on the outside. It doesn't matter which community in the copper country we live in. It doesn't matter what our discipline at Michigan Tech is. It doesn't matter which team we're cheering for this afternoon. You're getting the picture. In Christ, this family relationship exceeds, goes beyond everything else in this world. This term brother is simple, and yet it is Paul's humbling reminder that you are the church. We together, together, together are the church. The church is not where you go on Sunday. The church is who you are. It's your very identity. Your church life is not to be the, on the peripheral of your life. Your church life is God's design. It's his intent that our fellowship together is to be the very center of the relationships that we share together in this world. And too often, we treat it as a Sunday morning for an hour and a half or two if the weather's good, if it's convenient, if it fits into my family schedule, talking about my immediate family and not talking about this family that we share together. This is intense. This is what we share together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And the very next word that he uses in verse 12 is he entreats them. This is an earnest petition. This is not passive. This is not like I really hope you do. This is intense. This is Paul's passion coming out again. He entreats them as family. What does he say? Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, I want, you to rem- I want to remind you and really push the button on this one. Paul's not passively saying this. He is passionately pressing them. Become as, as I am, just as I have become as you are. What is he saying here? First of all, we can notice the fact that Paul's not afraid to tell people to follow after him. We, in this kind of pseudo-humility, feel like that's arrogant. And yet, in this biblical concept of discipleship, Paul is saying, follow after me walk as I walk. We see that all throughout Scripture, and this is really interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to the family language again. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. He's talking about the fact that he's their spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's saying, I had the privilege of bringing you to Christ. The Holy Spirit worked and used me to bring you the good news of Jesus. You responded to that. You became adopted by the Father through the Son, and miraculously, God used me to bring you that message. So what he's saying here is, in a sense, I'm your spiritual father. I brought you that life. I brought you that message. Verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Wow. If anyone but Paul said this, we'd say, how arrogant. And yet what he's saying here is, this is the model of discipleship within the church. Those who you lead to Christ, those who you disciple, you are to have them follow after you, which means you have a great responsibility of walking rightly, circumspectly before them. And that is those who are discipling you are walking and living their lives before you, loving their wives, loving their husbands, caring for their children, discipling, studying the word, growing in sanctification. If you are being discipled by one like that, walk behind them. Follow that example. He uses the same language in chapter, same language in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me, but with a qualification as I am of Christ. As I follow after Christ, you follow after me. We're following each other to that place. It's in another place, and we again just see this personification of discipleship being played out here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Timothy is probably the most notable disciple of Paul. Paul saying to Timothy, you're my disciple, now you disciple. 
No, you do this. You have some people follow after you. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Multiplication. Continue to do this. Galatians 4 verse 12. Take it back to where we were. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So what's his plea here? This this plea is related to the theme and the message of this book. Salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Right? This is a call for them to turn from the works of the old law, the Mosaic law. Turn away from that. The Judaizers are misleading you, saying this is how you are justified. This isn't how you're justified. No man is justified by works of the law as a means of salvation. Here's some paraphrasing to try and just personify what he's saying here. Paul's essentially saying something like this. I, Paul, I grew up and was trained in the highest order of Judaism. I was trained as a rabbi. I was trained as a Pharisee. I was rising up among the Pharisees. I was going to become one of the highest of the Pharisees. I was charged to go out by this group of people to persecute Christians. I walked by works of a law for most of my life. But in Christ, I've been set free from the law. I've been set free from the law. I've turned away from my self-righteousness. My faith is now in Christ alone. What's he saying here? You witnessed that when I came to you. I didn't come to you bringing the gospel, walking under the law. I came to you bearing the gospel free from the law. You saw that. My faith is now in Christ alone. I did not live as a religious Jew. Here's the text. I become as you are. I came just walking in as a simple man. You are Gentiles. You are ones who, because you're Gentiles, were rejected by my people. And yet, how was my life any different than yours in the fact that I didn't come in in the Mosaic Law? I just came in bearing the message of Christ. I think his point is this. I've placed my faith in Christ alone, not by works of the law. You, on the other hand, know the message of grace and are now turning your faith to works of the law. Don't do that. Don't do that. I became as you are, now you need to become as I am, free from the law. We can never add to, we can never improve on, on what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. Become as I am. Follow after me. I brought you the message of grace. Now walk behind me in that as I walk toward Christ. The next section, verses 12 and 13, the last part of verse 12, I should say. He says, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And here Paul discusses what was originally brought to, what originally brought him to Galatia. This is really interesting. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out on that initial, that first missionary journey, we know they were sent out, they were, they were going out to bring the gospel message to these faraway people, to be faithful to the Great Commission, to all the nations, to bring the good news in regards to that. But we're not given an itinerary. We're not giving a plan per se. You're going to first go here, then you're going to go here, then you're going to go here. We actually see the itinerary unfold past tense as it played out. According to this text, we see uh, the fact that, that what Paul did and the fact that he went to Galatia actually might not have been the original plan. You ready? It was God's providence at work. There were circumstances in Paul's life that redirected or or restrained his path and pressed him toward Galatia because God had a plan for the people of Galatia. It's in Acts chapter 14 that it it chronicles the journey of Paul's missionary journey going to Galatia, to cities like Iconium, to Lystra. By the way, note the fact that it's in Lystra, in Galatia, that Paul was stoned and left for dead. We have no record of what Paul's original plans were, nor do we know what his ailment was that's spoken about here in chapter 4. 
Now, here's what's interesting. When we think about this ailment, most people point to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. I was joking with someone, someone was teasing me this morning about my thorn in the flesh, and I said, which one? Right? We don't know if this ailment that Paul's talking about is even that thorn in the flesh. It very well may be. We don't know. It's commonly held that Paul had poor vision. A lot of people think that was his thorn in the flesh. We know that as Paul wrote so many of his uh, epistles to the different churches, he actually didn't pen them probably because of this terrible vision that he had. Probably it was not, well, not probably, it was necessary for him to essentially use a scribe as he dictated these letters, and then at the beginning or the conclusion of the letter, he would put in his own personal salutation in a sense that people would see his signature, his byline. This is really from Paul. All of this probably because of his poor vision. Did this happen as a result of the vision that he had on the Damascus Road where his eyes were covered with scales that then fell off later? Think about that. Did that have some kind of a long-term uh, response to his vision and his eyes? We don't know that. Would we attribute the, his vision to the fact that he was beaten he was stoned and left for dead. His many imprisonments and hardship that he lived of life, was there something that happened there that his vision was uh, you know, hindered in some way? We don't know that. I would repeat, it's noteworthy that he was stoned and left for dead in Lystra, Galatia. Is there a correlation here? I don't know that. But look at verse 15. This is an interesting connection to the eyes. Verse 15, it says, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Interesting, isn't that? Not only did they care for him in his ailment, they were even willing to sacrifice their own eyes that he could see. And he says that, I think, metaphorically, but you get the picture. The answer is, we don't know the details of the ailment, but this is what's important. What we see is, based on this text, it's really clear that Paul probably would never have gone to Galatia if it wasn't for the hardship of a physical ailment that brought him there. For some reason, by God's providence, Paul got sick, he was injured, he couldn't see, something was going on in him physically, and it was determined by both he and Barnabas, partners in ministry, on this first missionary journey, let's go to Galatia, there's something there that will help you. Let's rest up. Let's lick your wounds. Let's get you healthy again, Paul. What was this? We don't know. But it happened, and this text seems to point to it directly. And what was the result of this interruption in their plan, bringing them to Galatia? In Paul's plan to travel abroad and to preach the gospel? In this interruption, on the basis of this ailment, God instead directed his path to bring the gospel to Galatia. Now, I just kind of want to go through some hypothetical what-ifs, right? Please take this as this is human reason, not God's sovereignty, not God's providence, but just put this in the human what-if perspective. If not for this ailment, from a human perspective, the Galatians might have never heard the gospel. They might not have ever had the gospel to turn away from. Think about that. The book of Galatians might never have been penned by a human perspective. Think about this. Because of an ailment. The clear teaching of Scripture, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, might never have been recorded for us in the Word of God from a human perspective. The Reformation being founded and built off of the teaching of Galatians and Romans might never have happened from a human perspective. Where would you be in regards to the glorious gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if it were not for a physical ailment in Paul's life? Now, there's significance to that when we think about how we personally apply this. There are so many times that we call out to God in our pain, in our ailment, in our anguish, when our plans aren't playing out as we have planned, as we have decided they needed to go. And we cry out to God asking something like, 
God, where are you in my pain? God, why are you allowing this to happen? By the way, it's not wrong to ask God truly, God, why are you doing this? I want to glorify you in this. How can I do that? But we ask it confrontingly. We ask it in a way that's confrontationally. And we forget the fact that sometimes the very worst things that fall upon us from our human perspective actually may be in the very center of God's plan and his purpose for his eternal kingdom. In ways that we may never know, that we may never understand. God used an ailment to bring the gospel to Galatia. And the ramifications just continue to spin forward from that. Romans 8.28, we looked at this a lot as we were doing some Old Testament study a couple years ago. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's providence. And it's so interesting when we look at this, Paul's pointing in these verses, it was God's providence in my ailment that brought the gospel to Galatia. Next section, verse 14. A self-sacrificing love. It says this in verse 14. And though my condition was a trial to you, hear those words? You did not scorn or despise me. The tense and the way that this reads when you look at the whole section, the fact that they received him and cared for him seems to even be played out before they even received the gospel. In a sense, if we could read it this way, the reason Paul went to Galatia was not to preach the gospel, it was to get healthy. But while I'm here, I'm of course, gonna, I'm of course going to preach the gospel. So they received him When he's under this trial, he became their trial even before they were regenerate, we might argue. Interesting. Paul's point here is that he came to them helpless. He came to them as a burden. He came to them seeking help. In a sense, at least when he first arrived, they didn't know him. They didn't know his reputation. The gospel had not yet gone this far. They did not yet know the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet this group of people simply received a stranger. They welcomed him as he stumbled into their town, sick and needing help. This is true hospitality, by the way, guys. We think about easy hospitality to people we like that are convenient, that don't disrupt our, don't disrupt our homes. When we have people come into our homes, we say, make yourself at home, and yet we don't really mean that. This was true hospitality. These people personified the good Samaritan who cared for, sacrificed time, gave up his energy, his resources to meet the, man, meet the needs of a man who had been robbed and led de- left dead on the side of the road. This is the personification of that. Even before Christ was in their life, we might say. And as a result of that, they were blessed with the gospel. And when, did this, uh, when they did this, they were blessed and they received back more than they ever had expected. Look at verse 14 again. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. They were blessed with the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it says this, it doesn't literally mean that they believe Paul was an angel. It doesn't literally mean that they believe that Paul was the Messiah, the promised one, the deliverer. That's not what it's saying. He's saying, you received me in that way, as if I were, as if I were an angel, as if I was Christ himself. You received me with that kind of a love, with the same kind of care, with the same kind of compassion, the same kind of a welcome or hospitality that an angel would be worthy of. So here's another application point that all relates back to providence. We can bring it to providence. Too often, I think especially in the culture that we live in, in North America, in this like isolated space, I take care of myself, I've got what I need. We are so guarded regarding our time. And I'm pointing fingers at myself, but boy, have I noticed that since COVID ended. We are so guarded about our time right now. We are so guarded of our money. We are so protective of our family. When in reality, there are times we might need to bypass that, that we are bypassing God's plan for blessing in our own lives as a result of showing this kind of hospitality. 
this kind of openness. So when it comes to God's providence, what are some areas of your life that you might need to surrender right now? That you might need to surrender the control that you're holding over your own life and give it to the Lord, allowing Him to accomplish His perfect will in your life. Maybe it's an ailment. We already talked about that. Maybe it's just a matter of saying, I'm going to quit being so protective and I'm going to open myself up to minister to those around me for the purpose of the glory of Jesus Christ that He would be proclaimed. Because God is also sovereign, not just providential, but He is sovereign, He will always accomplish His will in spite of you. To be blunt, He doesn't need you. Remember the human perspective that I put on God's providence and Paul being brought to Galatia as a result of his ailment? God was going to accomplish what he was going to accomplish, and he didn't need Paul to get that done. He doesn't need you either. But consider the bypass that you put in your own life when you put these guards up or you step back or you protect yourself and say, God, I don't want to do that right now, when he has incredible blessings in store for you as you seek to walk in obedience. How do you need to trust God as he is working in, through, and around you today. That's the position Paul was in. That's the way that the Galatians received him, and they were both mutually blessed in this. Verses 15 and 16. What then has become of your blessedness? The essence of this question is really simple. What in the world happened? What happened to all this love that we shared? What we had shared was so blessed, was so pure, it was so right. I gave you the truth. God worked in that. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God did a work of bringing you to life in Christ. You were adopted. You were adopted in Christ Jesus to the Father. What we shared was so glorious and good as God providentially brought us together. Now you've rejected that. You've turned your back on me. You've listened to the voice of false teachers and and exchanged their lies for the truth that I brought you, and that has compromised our relationship. Look at verse 15 again. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. One of you volunteered to let me use you as a sermon illustration, what that looks like to gouge your eyes out. I'm just kidding. You did offer that, but I'm not going to do that. Think about the significance of the sacrifice that these, will, these people were willing to make for Paul. They were willing to give their own eyes to care for him. And now they've rejected him. Notice how significant this turn is. We know the fact, we can recognize this in personal relationships, and this seems to be happening here as well, when you have or had a relationship that was built on this mutual sacrifice for each other, this mutual trust for one another, this natural dependence on one another, you can share and talk about really difficult things because there's a trust. The wounds of a friend, they heal, right? There's things that we can say not carelessly, not not with the purpose of harming, but I'm going to say some hard things to you because you need to hear the truth right now right? Those kind of relationships. Formerly, it seems like Paul and the Galatians had that. Presently, in the contemporary time as this is being written, it seems like Paul is saying, but that's all gone now. I'm having to talk to you about really hard things, and you just don't even trust me anymore. There was a time you would have given your eyes up for me. Now you've turned against me. There's now lies, There's now persuasion by false teachers. You're now being manipulated by the lies of these false teachers. And the result is that the Galatians have now rejected both Paul and the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Boy, there's something painful in that, isn't there? You see what he's saying? This isn't relative truth. This isn't what's true for you is, true, is not true for me and vice versa, which is, by the way, the slogan of our culture today. This isn't about my opinion, your opinion. This is about the very person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And because I've stood solidly, Paul would say, on the truth of the gospel, this is who Jesus Christ is, you've now rejected me. 
Formerly you would have given anything for me, but now you will not. And this is why Paul uses this logic or this argumentation. He now calls them to love. I think this is how it fits into the bigger picture. He has very, very apologetically worked through this rhetoric, this attorney kind of a talk. This is what you need to do. This is the truth you need to know. And now he changes gears. He changes his tones. And I'm appealing to your heart. Let me talk to your heart. Let me speak to you in a way that you need to respond from the heart. Don't forget what we have shared in the past. Why in the world are you throwing that out today? All I'm bringing to you is truth. There's no lies. And yet they have rejected that. And now he shows the contrast between his message and the lies that they're embracing and throwing him away for in verse 17. This is the motivation of false teachers. And by the way, he doesn't identify and say, they Judaizers. He just talks about they, but clearly this is who he's talking about. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. Do you get the picture there? Boy, they have good things to say, but their motivation's terrible. They want to shut you out that you may, may, may make much of them. Again, this is one of those moments that we get a snippet from Scripture. We don't know the precise details of this, but I guarantee as Paul speaks these words, he has some images, he has some words, he has some things that have been said to the Galatians, and he understands, he knows what he's talking about. And I think that as the Galatians are reading this, they're not going, what's he talking about? He's going, yeah, I know what they're talking about. I know what's being stated here. Paul's motives were clear when he spoke to them. Paul's motive was the truth. It was the glory of Jesus Christ. It was the love that they shared. And what he's pointing out is they, the Judaizers, the false teachers, their motivation is completely contrary. It's not you. It's not the truth. It's not the glory of Jesus Christ. It's themselves. They want you to puff them up. They want you to build them up. They want you to make much of them. This is not at all indifferent or different than what took place in 2 Corinthians that we looked at not, a, not that long ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The truth. We speak the truth. And again, no application question, just a, just a point that kind of hits us right, behind the, right between the eyes. Beware of anyone who manipulates the Word of God. Beware of anyone who manipulates the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not have your best interest in heart. What this text is showing us in the summation of what we see in so much of the New Testament, their desire is themselves. They may be charlatans. They may pretend to be something different. They may promise really good things. But their motive is not Christ. Their motive is not you. Their motive is themselves, which is ultimately to the glory of their master, Satan himself. Verse 18. It is good to be made much of with the right motive. He just qualifies. I think we can just simply summarize that real simply. He's summarizing what he's saying there. They're saying good things with the purpose of manipulating you to get what they want. But he's saying here, but there's another side of that coin. Let's be real. It's good to say good things about each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be commending each other. We should be supporting each other. It's good to give each other an attaboy in a right motive kind of a way. It's good to commend one another. How much more so is it appropriate, not only for us to do that in the world, but for us to do that for each other as the household of God. For us to share compliments among the household of God. We should praise each other. We should rejoice with each other. We should mourn with one another. We should encourage one another. We should be building one another up. I think that's the qualification Paul's given here. When our purpose and motives are right, not manipulative, Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, for the right purpose, with the sincere purpose, we would say. And not only when I am present with you, 
So Paul distinguishes his motives from the motives of the false teachers. He distinguishes that his motives were not false, but his motives were right. In a sense, what he's saying is, I made much of you because I love you. Because I want you to follow after me as I follow after Christ. They, the false teachers on the other hand, they made much of you to manipulate you. Honestly, to destroy you, to crush you. We know the power of our words when used the right way or the wrong way. James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of our words, our tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. I think that summarizes, that little phrase summarizes what Paul's talking about here. Our mouths, our words in the household of God are to bless, to encourage, to build up, to point people toward truth. They're using it to curse you, that you'll follow after them, we might say. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And then our last bite here, verse 19. The tone of a mother. More family verbiage. More family tone. My little children, my children, father, family, for who I am again in the anguish, notice the connection, there's anguish again, for who I am in anguish of childbirth, in case you didn't know, that's mother talk, until Christ is formed in you. Paul has spoken firmly with them. Amy and I talked about this when our kids were small and they were growing up, that these certainly, this is a generalization, these roles cross paths, but there were times when our children were young that it was more my duty as a father to ensure, to charge them, to stir them up, to challenge them to do hard things. To, to, to do the things that, that are hard and difficult. Moms can do that too, but in this masculine world, there's a role that I play in regards to that. Paul's been doing that. On the other hand, as a mom, generally speaking, there's a soft side, there's a compassion, there's a love that when dad asks the kids to do something stupid and challenge them, she puts the Band-Aid on, right? To be ludicrous, but I think you get the point. He's talking like a mom now. He's been talking like the father. He's been charging them. He's been challenging them. He's been calling them to the truth. And now he shifts gears and he changes his tone. And he says, you guys, I'm like a mom who's in the throes of childbirth for you. You're killing me. I'm hurting for you. I'm grieving for you in a sense. I'm watching you flounder as a child. I want to see you thrive. I want to see you grow up into adulthood. Why are you choosing to remain as infants under the law? Grow up in Christ. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in the best way. I want you to grow up. I want you to achieve maturity. I want you to walk with Christ. I'm going to remain faithful to you, Paul would say. I will not forsake you until Christ is formed in you. I'm standing behind you backwards as you follow after me, until Christ is formed in you. There's two ways to take this verse, or this little statement, I guess we'd say. One way to take this, this little phrase, until Christ is formed in you. I'm not giving up on you in regards to making clear this message of salvation. I'm just going to keep preaching the truth. I'm just going to keep driving this home. I'm going to keep bringing you the truth. Because I love you, I'm going to keep bringing it to you. You might have given up on grace, he would say to them. You might have turned to works. You might have turned away from the grace of Jesus Christ that's received only through faith. But I will relentlessly stand behind you. Or I will relentlessly lead you to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ until you turn to the truth. That's one possibility. The other possibility is this. And I hear a mom's voice in this. I'll never give up on you. 
just as a mother will never give up on her struggling child. I will walk with you. I will even carry you if I need to until Christ is formed in you. The second way to take this is he is pointing to the day that we will see Christ Jesus face to face. That we are no longer under this flesh of sin, this anguish of sin, this world that we live in, but there will be a day that we will be reunited with him once again. We've talked so much about the garden in the last months, but this is pointing toward that. When true sanctification will come, the already but not yet, we're looking for it, it's coming, I want to lead you to that day. I'm going to stand behind you until we reach that day. Philippians 1.6 talks about this. For I am sure of this, speaking to the believer, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on that day, uh, uh, completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the day where we're united with Christ. We will see him face to face. We'll be free from sin. We'll be free, free from this flesh. The day we will truly, genuinely, in reality, be sanctified in him. Either way, what's Paul saying? I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to continue to lead you. You're going to continue to follow after me. So here's our last application question. Even as Paul is committing to remain faithful to a people who have turned their backs on him, have rejected the truth, and have turned to a different gospel, not that there is another gospel, right? Who is it that's in your life right now? Think about this. Who is it that is in your life right now that you need to remain faithful to in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Someone that may be in your own flesh, you've given up on them. They know the truth, they've heard the truth, and they're floundering in that truth. Who is it that maybe you need to go preach that gospel to another time? Who is it that you need to go and re-clarify the truth again? Who is it that's struggling and just needs encouragement? Who is it that you need to go to that needs to be propped up. They need to hear the good things from you with the right purpose. Who is it that's in your life that God has placed there by his providence that you have a responsibility to do something about that? You ready? Write that name down. Write that name down. I don't see anybody writing. Do something about that today. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ.